Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1264. Interview number three with Jim Diagenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on October 7th of the year 2022. Once again, it is my pleasure and privilege to bring back to our airwaves Jim Diagenio, the author of, among other titles, Destiny Betrayed, which was the focal point of 25 one-hour talks that we did in 2018 and 2019, and also JFK Revisited. That is a book that entails both the two-hour and four-hour transcripts of the documentaries done by Oliver Stone, and for which Jim Eugenio was selected to write the screenplays. Now, we are focusing on JFK Revisited in this uh, program and in this series. I simply want to announce that in the Zoom, I'm doing a Zoom site with three one-hour talks per week and also uh, Zoom Q&A meetings. And one of the things that we're going to be factoring in to the Zoom Q&A meetings are periodic discussions with authors, and researchers. And Jim has very kindly uh, volunteered to periodically appear and keep us up to date with some of the JFK books, both good and bad, that have uh, been published, and also for any uh, new and more significant developments in the ongoing investigation of JFK Revisited. So, uh, of, of the JFK assassination, excuse me. So, Jim, thank you so much for that, and uh, welcome back once again to our airways. Okay, nice to be here, Dave. Well, let's plunge right back in. We got a book here, uh, and by the way, we're once again wrestling with some capricious audio in a Zoom meeting, so uh, I hope that people will be able to bear with me. Let's jump back in, Jim, to what we were talking about last week. We have been discussing JFK's Cold War policy and so many of the things that he did or would not do that convinced the national security establishment that it was time to get rid of him. We spoke about his refusal to invade Cuba uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We talked about his remarkable speech at American University in June of 1963, in which he not only called for reevaluating our relationship with the Soviet Union, but also acknowledged their primary role in the defeat of Nazi Germany in World War II. Uh, JFK was proposing joint space exploration with the Soviet Union, something that would have been anathema to former SS officer Werner von Braun, who was in charge of our space program, and things like the Atmospheric Test Ban Treaty. Now, again, something that I have spoken about at length on the broadcasts that I have done over the years, and that concerns the reneging by the Western allies on their stated policy of granting independence to colonial territories that had been conquered by the Axis in World War II. The net effect 
of that negation was to cast what we call the developing nations or the emerging nations, uh, also terms like non-aligned nations, the third world. The net effect was to cast these countries into the Cold War, into the bloody maelstrom of the U.S. and the West versus the USSR. And on page 352, your colleague Lisa Peace, and this is also quoted in the documentaries, had something that I think really will serve as a keystone to our next major element of discussion. Uh, on page 352 of JFK Revisited, uh, Lisa Peace is quoted as saying, speaking of JFK, his was a radical break from his predecessor. In an oral history interview that Sukarno, the president of Indonesia, gave after John Kennedy's death, he said words to the effect that what made Kennedy special is that he believed non-alignment was not amoral as it had been under John Foster Dulles. I thought that was an interesting way of putting it. Well, yes, indeed it was. And I think it encapsulated one of the most important dynamics of JFK's presidency and something which I guess featured prominently in the PowerPoint presentation you gave at a JFK convention in Pittsburgh in 2013, and something that really is fundamental, I think, to JFK's foreign policy, his national security policy, and beyond that, his understanding. Uh, I'd like you to recap for us, Jim, a trip that then newly elected Senator John F. Kennedy I believe he'd already been elected to the Senate, but he traveled to Indochina, as it used to be called, when it was a French colony in 1950. Was that in 52 or 54? No, he was a representative at that time. It was in 1951. 1951. Well, thank you for correcting me. He was a U.S. representative, not yet elected to the Senate. Mm. In any event, he traveled to what was then called French Indochina. It became the countries of Laos, Cambodia, and North and South Vietnam, now Vietnam, since they are unified. And when he was in Indochina, he networked with an American diplomat named Edmund Gullion, G-U-L-L-I-O-N, and he appeared to have a profound effect on Kennedy, not only with his insights with regard to Indochina, but also with regard to Africa. And beyond that, uh, he certainly was an influence on JFK's understanding of the emerging or monoline. Well, tell us about JFK in 1951, Edmund Gullion, and uh, what JFK learned. All right. Th- this is, a, to me, uh, actually, a keystone moment in understanding Kennedy as president and also understanding why they had to get rid of him. In 1951, he was preparing to run for senator 
against Henry Cabot Lodge. And he figured that, well, if I'm going to run against this guy, I'm going to have to raise my profile and I'm going to have to get some international experience. Okay. And so him and his brother and his sister, uh, decided to take a journey through the Near East and Indochina, as you say, Southeast Asia. Okay. Which at, at that time was involved in a, in a very bad colonial war. Okay. Uh, between a movement called the Viet Minh. Okay. Versus the French colonialists who wanted to repossess the country after World War uh, two. Now, as you just, pointed out, very briefly, very briefly, the Viet Minh had actually begun as anti-Japanese guerrillas in right. World War II and enjoyed the support and assistance of the OSS, America's World War II intelligence. Correct. So this, in fact, Ho, Ho Chi Minh actually was meeting with the OSS at the end of the war. <laughs> okay, so this is t- incredibly ironic. Okay, well, this switch should happen. And as you said earlier, the evidence indicates that Franklin Roosevelt wanted to set these colonial possessions free prior to his death, his untimely death in April of 1945. That seems to be his clear intent from everybody who knew him at that time. All right? So what happens is, that under Harry Truman and Dean Acheson, his Secretary of State, this policy is not just dropped, okay? It's it's actually fundamentally altered. And so instead of supporting these colonies that wanted to be set free, we ended up siding with the colonial masters, in this case, the French Empire, all right? And so when Kennedy gets into Indochina, he listens to the French and they're telling him, oh God, you know, there's, we're going to, we're going to win this war. There's, there's no doubt about it. All right. You know, the, the other side that, but he notices things like there's grenade nests over some of the buildings that are in the outside outskirts of Saigon. Okay. You know, he notices reading some of the papers, you know, because the French had translated that, that the Viet Minh are in the countryside 25 miles away. So he begins to think, well, you know something? Maybe I'm not getting the real story here. And there's two people that he meets that he makes a point of seeing that make an indelible oppression on, upon him. They are, as you mentioned, Edmund Gullion who he knew from the State Department uh, in Washington uh, as a representative, and a reporter named Seymour Topping, who I believe worked for the New York Times. And he made it a point to see both of these guys. Gullion and Topping both told him, so you get it from a diplomatic point of view, and you get it from a newspaper, an honest journalist point of view. Both are saying that there's highly doubtful the French are going to put down this rebellion, okay? Because for the simple reason that Ho Chi Minh had 
such a charismatic and magnetic uh, attraction to the people who wanted to be set free that the way look, they looked at it, they would rather die fighting than go back under the colonial heel of Paris. All right. And when, when Kennedy got this essentially in stereo from Gullion and, and Topping, you know, like his brother said, because his brother with Bobby was there with him. Okay. You know, he said this made a very deep impression on his psyche about the whole issue of nationalism versus colonialism and what the United States should be doing in the third world. Now, as you said, there was a nascent movement that would culminate in 1954 called the Non-Aligned Movement. And these nations, for example, Indonesia uh, and Egypt, okay, had their first meeting, I think it was in Bandung, Indonesia, in the summer of 1954. That meeting, and this is a very important point to hammer home for your audience, that meeting was called by Sukarno as a direct result of what John Foster Dulles had done in Central America and the Middle East in 1953 and 1954. And I don't know if you... Let me interrupt at this point briefly, because I think there is an important piece of back, or important element of background information that will give depth to what Kennedy was doing when he basically set sail in a different direction from U.S. policy and what was then Indochina. And that was, A, the fact that the U.S. was actually financing, providing the vast bulk of the financing for the French war effort, and that when the French forces became were besieged at Dien Bien Phu, they ultimately fell, uh, a fellow who was to play a really key part in JFK's life uh, and who was then vice president of the U.S., namely Richard Nixon, came up with something called Operation Vulture. Uh, if you would briefly tell us about that, then we'll return to uh, the Bandung Conference and the Marmalade movement, because I think in terms of understanding how fundamentally JFK was departing from the uh, yellow brick road of American national security and foreign policy at that point. I think some of the background might be worth uh, talking about. By by 1950-1951, Truman and Acheson had decided they were going to back um, the French. All right. The problem was France really couldn't afford this war. (laughs) Okay. It was getting very, very expensive. They literally had hundreds of thousands of men in French Indochina. And so as time went on, the United States ended up picking up more and more and more of the budget till by the time John Foster Dulles came in, 1953. Okay. The United States was supplying about 78 to 80% of the financing for this war. 
And they decided to keep on pressing it. There's signs that Paris wanted to negotiate, but John Foster Dulles would not let them negotiate. All right. So here comes this new strategy by the French army, which is to go into the northern part of Indochina. And the attempt was to get Giop, the commander of the North Vietnamese and the Viet Minh forces, into an open battle. Well, this turns out to be a disaster at Dien Bien Phu because Giop was able to bring heavy artillery. Okay, and the French made a terrible mistake by taking the low part of the land while Giop actually scaled the heights of the valley around Dien Bien Phu. And he could actually fire into the lowlands, all right, with this heavy artillery, which I believe was supplied by the Russians, all right? So the writing's on the wall. This is going to be a terrible, terrible defeat, all right? And so John Foster Dulles and Richard Nixon, and by the way, Nixon owed a lot to John Foster Dulles in a lot of different ways, intellectually, uh, philosophically, the whole view of the third world. And so they decide that the only way we can bail out France, okay, is to actually send an air armada in to relieve the siege of Dien Bien Phu. This is called Operation Vulture. It was a huge, huge operation on paper, okay? You had... I think if I remember correctly, there were 150 planes involved because they feared the Chinese might intervene. So they need protective fighter, fighter power. Okay. To protect the actual armada. This included three atomic bombs. All right. And Dulles and, and Admiral Rafford and Nixon actually signed off on this thing. All right. They all agree that this was the only way they could save the siege. So then they pass it up to Eisenhower. And Eisenhower says, I'll only do this if the British go in with it on us. All right. And so Dulles went over to London and he tried to get the British to go in on it. But Anthony Eden, who I believe was the foreign minister at that time, he said, no, we're, 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 we're not going to go in on this thing, you know. And so then Dulles went to Paris and he privately said to the French foreign minister there, I think his name was Bedalt, okay, we'll give you a couple of atomic bombs. <laughs> and Bedalt says, if we use those things, we'll kill as many French as we will Vietnamese. Okay, this is how crazy this thing got. All right. And, and Kennedy... When he heard about this, because Nixon was doing the congressional liaison for it, you know, he took to the floor of the Senate and says, how in God's name can atomic weapons win a guerrilla war? Okay. (laughs) He said no amount, no amount of firepower can defeat an enemy that is perceived as the friend of the countrymen who they can hide among. Okay, who they can conceal themselves from. All right. And, and so this was really, in my opinion, the beginning of the huge split between Nixon and Kennedy that will accelerate through the years 
you know, until the 1960 election. Uh, something that is worth noting, and we will go into uh, many other examples of JFK's understanding and policy with regard to the developing world in which he saw the aspirations for political independence of the colonial territories in the context that it really existed rather than as a manifestation of uh, the, quote, international communist conspiracy, unquote. Uh, Sticking with Vietnam, uh, going into JFK's election. Now, he has been elected in 1960, and in Destiny Betrayed and in JFK Revisited, there is discussion of JFK's Vietnam policy and how it conflicted with what not only members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff but uh, members of the State Department. Interestingly, John uh, or Henry Cabot Lodge, who was defeated by JFK for, in a senatorial race, became the U.S. ambassador to Vietnam, uh, which is more than a little interesting. But tell us about JFK and Vietnam, Jim. Tell us about all right. This this backstory and- that we just talked about, okay, with the whole. Uh, visit to Saigon in 1951, his whole attack on John Foster Dulles's approach. Okay, and by the way, before Dulles launched Operation Vulture, about 11 or 12 months before, Kennedy had written him a letter. And there was 47 questions in there about about this whole issue. One of them was, what do you plan on doing if the French position falls? <laughs> okay. Well, we just saw what happened. Okay. Dulles was going to actually extend them atomic weapons not to fall. Okay. So as we know, what happened is that Dulles essentially did what many people thought he would do, which was to take over the position that French had held, you know, prior to the fall of Dien Ben Phu. All right. He disobeyed the Geneva Accords, called off any elections to unify the country, sent in Edwin Lansdale, the CIA officer, who was a black ops magician, to go ahead and build up this new country, South Vietnam, under Ngo Dien Diem, who was a Catholic, Okay, where the majority, 70% of the people there were, were Buddhists. All right, so JFK comes in, and he has the same position, pretty much speaking, you know, broadly, that he had before. You know, look, we're not going to go into Vietnam. You know, we will send advice. We will send advisors. Okay. But we are not going to send in American combat troops into this struggle. Okay, I don't see it that way. I don't think America should get involved in the third world directly, direct intervention. All right. And, of course, this is the same thing happened at the Bay of Pigs. You know, Kennedy felt, well, okay, we can send them weapons. We can, you know, give them some advice. 
We can give them some tactile help, but we're not going to fight for them. All right. So what happens is that by the November of 1961, now remember, I'm saying November of 1961, Kenny's inaugurated in January. So he's been in office like 10 months. There's nine different requests from either the CIA or the Pentagon or the State Department to bring American troops, combat troops, into Indochina. Kennedy turns down every single one of them. All right. Finally, there is a big meeting in November of 1961 after Kennedy sent Walt Rostow and uh, Maxwell Taylor to Saigon. All right. And they come back with a report that essentially says the same thing. I think they wanted something like 8,800 combat troops to go into theater. There's a big meeting. I think it's on November the 15th of 1961. John Kenneth Galbraith, who was the ambassador to India, and we feature his son in the film. Uh, okay, uh, Jamie Galbraith, and in the book, all right, JFK Revisited. John Kenneth Galbraith heard about this proposal. He found, he st- literally stole a copy of the report off Walt Rostow's desk. He takes it back to his hotel because he happens to be in town from his, his ambassadorial position. He happens to be in Washington at that time. He reads this report. He's horrified. He calls up Kennedy. He says, you're not really going to do this, are you? Okay. And Kennedy says, write me up a memo to counter it. So Kennedy delays the showdown meeting, waits for the memo from Galbraith, calls his brother in. They read over the memo together. Then at the meeting, whenever somebody would suggest, like Dean Rusk, for example, that we should inject combat troops in the theater, Bobby Kennedy would step forward. You know, you can just imagine his arms folded in front of him, you know, his teeth gritted. And he says, words to the effect, there will be no combat troops in Vietnam. Now, obviously, he was playing the heavy for his brother, okay, against all these other guys in the room, all right? And almost everyone, I mean, if you if you read about that meeting, you know, almost everybody in the room wanted to send in combat troops in November of 1961. So this makes the 10th time in one year that Kennedy has turned down combat troops. He was very angry about this meeting, by the way. He was very upset about it. Okay. And two weeks later, I think November the 27th, 1961, he called a meeting and Dulles was there. He was on his way out, of course. Okay. Lemnitzer was there. Taylor was there. McNamara was there. Kennedy got there late. He sits down. And he's very perturbed. And he says, words of the effect, look, you can bitch and moan all you want, but once a decision is made and becomes policy, you either support it or you resign. Okay? All right? And then he asked, now, who is going to carry out my Vietnam policy? And McNamara raised his hand. Okay? And so he then became the point man 
for Kennedy's withdrawal plan. And you can pretty much say that the withdrawal plan began with that meeting, November 27th, 1961. Uh, One of the things that is interesting about Robert McNamara is that he has gone down in history as a leading villain of America's involvement in Vietnam. Uh, And so to an extent, has Hubert Humphrey, who was LBJ's vice president. I know in uh, uh, Destiny Betrayed, you pointed out how once LBJ became president and once he instituted the uh, growing involvement of the U.S. in a combat role in Vietnam, both McNamara and Humphrey not only dissented, but as a result were basically marginalized within LBJ's administration. and uh, it's, it's really, you know, I'm glad you pointed that out because for whatever reason, and I consider this a failure of the mainstream media, you know, which of course has opened the door for people like you, okay, because it, beca- it became so bad. You know, Matt, it, this got tagged as McNamara's war. Yep. And a, a guy who did it who was very bad on this was David Halberstam. You know, he called it McNamara's War, you know, that terrible book, The Best and the Brightest. Well, this was not McNamara's War. All right. No, it, it wasn't. As as uh, Jamie Galbraith says in our film, okay, and in the book, JFK Revisited, he, McNamara carried out Kennedy's instructions pretty well for approximately two years. From November of 1961 to November of 1963, you know, and he was affecting Kennedy's intent, which at the time of his death was to withdraw from Vietnam that will be effective in 1965. Kennedy was building his withdrawal plan around the election. Well, anybody who knows anything about this subject, as someone like you does, knows that it wasn't McNamara reversed policy. It was Johnson. Johnson reversed the policy in a matter of days. You know, really, if you want to be serious about it, you know. And then by March of 1964, with NSAM 288, he had had now opened up the window on planning a major air war over Vietnam, which, of course, as you know, was called Operation Rolling Thunder, okay, which I believe was, is the largest air, ca- air camp bombing campaign in the history of mankind, you know, over this little country of Vietnam. Now, McNamara, now, I'm not going to make McNamara out to be a hero because I don't think he is a hero, okay? But what McNamara should have done once he saw this happening and he clearly saw it happening by March of 1964, because essentially Johnson, we play this tape uh, in the film and it's in the book also, you know, where he makes it very clear. He did not agree as vice president with what Kennedy and McNamara were doing. And he says words of the effect. How does America back out of a war that it's losing? That is a very, very important point 
that Johnson brought up. Because it says he was getting the real intelligence reports, of which there was only one office that was putting them out. And he was getting them through his military aide, Howard Burris. Okay. And those were the ones that were genuine. And they were the ones that said that, no, we're not winning. That's all the publicity from the Pentagon. We're not doing very well at all. Okay. And so he begins to then marginalize, as you said, very good word. He begins to marginalize McNamara. He begins to go ahead and reverse Kennedy's strategy and his policy, okay? And he begins to bring in these guys from the Pentagon, which Kennedy not only never did, he actually forbade it. He did not want these Joint Chiefs going over to Vietnam without his permission. He did not want to talk to them at all about escalating the war, all right? But Johnson did. Okay, and so Robert McNamara, his terrible mistake is he should have resigned by March of 1964. And instead, he stayed on and carried out this policy, which I really don't think he agreed with. He became a dissenter by at least late 1966. And then by 67, him and Johnson were at loggerheads. The only good thing that came out of this if you can call it that, is that McNamara understood what had happened. And he secretly commissioned the Pentagon Papers. And he told everybody involved with that project, we are not telling Johnson what we're doing. Okay? And it was that secret record that then leaked out through Daniel Ellsberg. Okay? that really began to break open this wall of secrecy and deception that the administration had built around the Vietnam War. Uh, Ben, the time frame right around JFK's assassination on 11-22-63 and the key memoranda uh, in October of 63, roughly a month before he was killed, uh, NSA 263 uh, was fundamental to setting forth JFK's Vietnam policy. And then Kennedy was killed on a Friday, November 22nd, 1963. The following Sunday, the day on which Ruby executed Oswald, the NSC reconvened and uh, drew up policies that were codified in NSA 273. Uh, again, I, I focus on the time. October 63, a month before Kennedy is killed, NSA 263. Then, two days after he is killed, on the day Ruby shoots Oswald, a day before Kennedy is even buried, the NSC reconvenes and draws up the uh, elements that were codified in NSA 273. Tell us about these two fundamental memoranda, Jim. NSA 263, NSAM 273, and uh, how did they differ? And bearing in mind, again, the time frame that I have just delineated. In October of 1963, McNamara and Taylor return from a journey to Saigon 
in which Kennedy, it's, it's not true to say they wrote up this report because all the information we have, okay, from very credible sources is that the White House was actually penning this report, okay, and they more or less kind of gave it <laughs> to McNamara and, and Taylor. Okay, I believe it was in either in Saigon or in Hawaii that they got the report. Now, Taylor, Maxwell Taylor, actually tried to take out the withdrawal program. Okay, which the the salient feature of the withdrawal program was NSAMP 263. And NSAMP 263 said that by the end of this year, which would, of course, mean December, we are going to withdraw 1,000 advisors. And I can't make that point strong enough. Okay, remember, there were no combat troops in Vietnam. These were advisors, you know, and he was going to start withdrawing the advisors in December of 1963. Now, in the rest of the McNamara-Taylor report, okay, it essentially says that this withdrawal program, which December 63 will be the beginning, will be completed by 1965 when all of the advisors will be removed from Vietnam. Interrupting briefly, Jim, let me emphasize this for the listeners. October of 1963, NSAM 263 authorizes a withdrawal of a 1,000 troops by the end of 63 and authorizes a withdrawal that was to be completed by 1965. And this is October of 1963, a month before Kennedy is assassinated. And then that policy is very quickly, shall we say, revised, <laughs> a euphemism. Right. What, what, what happened was that Johnson got a hold of a rough draft of NSAM 273, which had been written by McGeorge Bundy in Hawaii. All right. And Bundy had written it for Kennedy, all right? But Johnson kind of intercepted it, and he made several changes to it, all right? And so the NSAM 273 we have today is essentially Johnson's document. And what Johnson did in this is that he authorized a wider war in deeper into Cambodia and Laos, okay? And the most important thing he did is that he broke a line that Kennedy didn't want to cross. He allowed now for direct American intervention into the war because now the United States was going to sanction what was called O-Plan 34, which was the patrols that were matched up American destroyers with South Vietnamese speedboats. Who And these speedboats, on their own accord, the South Vietnamese could never have created them. It was Johnson's order 
that allowed the United States to go ahead and import these speedboats. Now, I don't have to tell you what this means, of course, because <laughs> these became the infamous DeSoto patrols, okay, which, well, let's not shed any uh, semantics about it. it. This was the provocation for the war because this created the Gulf of Tonkin incident. It's almost amazing to figure, you know, how fast this happened, okay? Because from having, you know, essentially no direct American intervention in the war, once these patrols, you know, started entering into the equation, Johnson essentially wrote a declaration of war. The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, and remember, this is 64, okay, <laughs> was essentially a declaration of war, okay, against North Vietnam. So this is, it makes your head spin when you think about it, okay, that NSAM 273, rewritten by Johnson, then allows for direct American intervention, okay, and that provokes the DeSoto patrols, which in turn caused the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Okay. That's how fast this was altered. I remember at the time, Jim, I was a freshman in high school when JFK was assassinated. And I remember in 1964 being very frightened about the possibility that Barry Goldwater might be elected president. He was talking openly about the possibility of using nuclear weapons in Vietnam and generally was viewed as a right-wing nut. His his campaign slogan was, in your heart, you know he's right. And LBJ's camp came up with a, a conflicting slogan, which I'll let you repeat. But I remember being very relieved when LBJ won. And as you point out, not only in Destiny Betrayed, but in JFK Revisited, and as you once said, once again enunciated, in March of 1964, the Rolling Thunder bombing campaign was on the books. And then in the fall, LBJ is openly campaigning on a we won't go into Vietnam platform. In fact, you, you feature in the film several clips. At one point, uh, LBJ is talking about how uh, American boys aren't going to be uh, employed, blah, 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 blah. But the stark hypocrisy where LBJ is running on basically what was a peace platform at the same time, as he is not only drawing up plans to bomb North Vietnam, but drawing up a program of covert operations, which provoked the beginning of the war. And it, 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 in, in the JFK Revisited, you actually quote LBJ. Yeah, he was saying, we're not going to send American boys 9,000 miles away to fight a war that Asian boys should be fighting themselves. What a liar. Okay, because he was already planning on doing that secretly. And by the way, the quote that the uh, Johnson uh, group would use to counter Goldwater was, in your guts, you know he's nuts. (laughs) 
which is really ironic in light right. of what OBJ was quite obviously aiming to do. Right. And by the way, and by the way, we're not exaggerating at all. Okay. When we say this stuff and, and, and because it's very clear that within three months after Kennedy is dead. Okay. Within three months at the most three and a half. All right. Johnson is already planning. This massive air war oh, to go in. And he already has 98 uh, target sites mapped out by the Joint Chiefs. So what Kennedy would not do in three years, Johnson did in three and a half months. That's how fast this was. One last point about this. One last point. Because I want to show how stupid the mainstream media was. The volumes to the Warren Commission as opposed to the Warren Report. You know, Dave knows this. The Warren Report comes out in, uh, you know, in September of 1964, but the evidence, the 26 volumes, does not come out till November, two months later. All right. Within three months of the Warren Commission volumes being published, Johnson has landed the first combat troops at Da Nang Air Base. Let me say that again. Three months after the 26 volumes have been published, Johnson lands the first contingent of combat troops at Da Nang Air Base in Vietnam. And, and nobody, as far as I know, nobody in the media, and I've studied this, has ever mentioned the confluence of those two events. You know, Jim, the media have, and, and, and I fault the so-called progressive sector enormously in light of the uh, relatively voluminous information that has come out since the House Select Committee, since uh, JFK, now JFK Revisited. The information about JFK's Vietnam policy and the reversal by Johnson is very well documented, and yet the media, and not just mainstream media, but also the so-called progressive media continue to flog the, frankly, it's, it's an institutionalized lie, which is that, quote, JFK got us into Vietnam. Unquote. I, I was speaking with a guy at one of the stations at which I work, and he said he'd always heard that JFK was a warmonger. So the lie about what JFK wanted to do, what he tried to do, and I think you would agree one of the major reasons he was killed has become institutionalized fact, although it is actually fiction. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. And one of the most important parts of the film, in the long version of the film, and also in the book, is McNamara's debrief. When Johnson shoved McNamara out of the Pentagon, all right, McNamara had to go through a debrief. In that debrief, he said that he and Kennedy had decided that the most they could do in Vietnam was train, advise, and supply equipment. They could not fight the war for Saigon. Once the training was done, they'd agreed that they were going to leave, okay, at that time. 
Now, <laughs> I don't see how it gets any more clear than that. And you couple that with the fact that Roswell Gilpatrick, McNamara's deputy, said in an oral history that McNamara told him that Kennedy had given him instructions to start winding this thing down in Southeast Asia. This is what I mean, Dave. This is what you're saying. I mean, I, I don't, how much more clear can you get? You know, it's maddening. You know, uh, Mort Saul, a brilliant political comedian who was, as you know, one of Jim Garrison's investigators into the assassination of JFK and the uh, prosecution of Clay Shaw. In his 1976 Heartland autobiography, Mort Saul uh, observed, quote, how many lies before you belong to the lies? Mm-hmm. One of the ramifications of that concerns professional compensation. And although it, it's not dealt with in JFK Revisited per se, uh, once again in presenting the documented truth about what JFK was attempting to do in Vietnam, and apparently one of the reasons he was killed, uh, once again, the uh, information that you present has been attacked by the so-called progressive sector. And I believe you crossed swords with someone uh, who was basically carrying water for Noam Chomsky, who is for the progressive sector, rather as Harry Selassie is for the Rastafarians. He is a a demigod, a larger-than-life figure. Uh, would you be willing to, to uh, detail that uh, for us? Because I know, once again, you had to fight the, uh, uh, I don't know what we call it, the Gulf of Tonkin re- uh, re- revisiting of history, so to speak. This was with a professor, Robert Buzonko, okay? And he had Chomsky on his show. And... Chomsky said words of what he's always been saying, you know, that there really wasn't any difference between Kennedy and Johnson. He actually went even further. I couldn't believe it. He actually compared Kennedy to Trump and Reagan, which is absolutely preposterous. All right. And so he said, if now if anybody from this Oliver Stone movie wants to debate me, okay, I'm open to a debate. So I said, okay, fine. I'll be, I'll be glad to debate you. And he wasn't very happy with what happened. Okay. I, I don't think he was understood how ready I was to attack Chomsky's position. Okay. Because all the declassified documents clearly indicate that Chomsky is simply wrong about this. He's as wrong as you can be, you know? And so then he tried to blame me. He tried to blame Oliver Stone. He tried to blame the moderator, Aaron Good. You know, it's, it's not any, it's, it's, it's the facts of this case that undermine that position, the Bazanko Chomsky position. It's not me. It's not Aaron. Okay. It's just a record. It does not compute with what Chomsky's position is anymore. I don't think it did in 1991. It certainly doesn't do it now. Well, what is so interesting is that people now, because the big lie has become uh, institutional, quote, truth, unquote, that now people's careers, their house payments, their uh, children's 
educational tuition, or to an extent hostage to the perpetuation of the lie. Now, I would note in this regard, although it may or may not be relevant, uh, Chomsky's gravitas as an academician, uh, he is a linguist, comes from generative linguistics, which he basically minted. Uh, it is now viewed with a degree of, with a jaundiced eye by many of the uh, people in the linguistics field, although there is still the Chomsky school that, that adheres to it. But, and this, by the way, Chomsky has been very out front about this. Uh, the work that he did on generative linguistics, like so much of the social science research in the 1950s and 1960s, was financed by military intelligence, specifically naval and Air Force intelligence. So uh, in this regard, uh, people's, you know, their, their CVs and the way they pay their bills is inextricably linked with the maintenance of the cover story. And I think there's an awful lot of people, I think, who if they were to admit what now is a documented truth about JFK's Vietnam policy and the major reason he was apparently a major reason he was assassinated, it would be going against their CVs. It would be going against their investments. It would be going against their house payments. So again, I, I cite Mort Saul's observation, how many lies before you belong to the lies? It is, mm. uh, I think, very telling. Um, I was, well, you know, I was a freshman in high school, Jim, when JFK was assassinated, and I knew something huge had happened. But I, I, uh, as I look back, you know, when the, obviously I was naive, I was a young kid, but uh, being so happy that LBJ won, as opposed to Barry Goldwater, and yet the whole time, uh, Basically, OBJ was manifesting a lie. He was lying to the American people about what he intended to do and what he was going to do. And yet that lie has been basically hung around Kennedy's neck as uh, a propaganda albatross. Yes, I agree. Uh, we're almost out of time, Jim. Uh, why don't we pick up another area of Southeast Asia, namely Laos. Uh, that was part of French Indochina in our next talk, and, and further develop the insights JFK had into the developing world, or the non-aligned world, and his grasping of the desire on the parts of these peoples for independence, and the masking of that desire by casting it into a Cold War international communist conspiracy uh, program. Uh, Jim, tell us about... Uh, Kennedys and King, tell us about where they can get JFK Revisited and Black Ops Radio. Okay, uh, kennedysandking.com is my website, uh, which I'm the editor of, and uh, reviews, articles, etc. I'm a semi-regular on Black Op Radio, a radio show out of Vancouver with Leno Sanic. And you can get the DVD off more than one, but, you know, Amazon, of course, is the most popular one. You can get the book at Barnes & Noble, JFK Revisited, okay, or Abbey Books or Amazon. And, uh, again, in the Zoom 
Q&A meetings that uh, I'm offering through the Patreon site. Uh, we're going to be having researchers and authors on periodically to interact with the audience. And Jim has very kindly uh, agreed to periodically keep us updated on literature coming out vis-a-vis the assassinations, whether it is good or bad. So uh, that is a treat that people can look forward to. And I very much appreciate that. Uh, it, you know, uh, well, we're almost out of time here. People have said that no one's interested in the Kennedy assassination anymore. And if you noted what happened with JFK Revisited and its sales. When the DVD of JFK Revisited came out, it was number one for the first week, number one for the second week, number three for the third week, number one for the fourth week, number six for the fifth week. It stayed in the top ten for eight weeks, two months. Okay? And it has done very well on Showtime. Okay? Also for them. All right? And the Showtime picked up a two-year contract, by the way, on JFK Revisited. So I'm sorry. I, I don't believe uh, that what the MSM wants us to believe about this. I think people are still interested in the JFK case. It's just a matter of them getting the right information. Absolutely. But you have been uh, front and center doing for us, along with Oliver Stone, who uh, deserves a tremendous amount of credit, along with the many other participants in both the JFK Revisited and JFK Destiny Betrayed versions of the documentary, the former two hours, the latter four hours, and in the book. So we will continue with this review of what JFK saw happening in the world at the time. That, however, we're going to do in our next interview, because this concludes, for the record, program number 1264. Interview number three with Jindy Eugenio about JFK Revisited. For Jindy Eugenio, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.